Well, we are in Leviticus, so let's go ahead and turn there. We got through chapters 1 through 7 last week. Um, I've prepared about the same amount, chapters 8 through 15 is what I'm thinking. And we'll see how we, we run with this. But I want to just give a, a quick little review from last week um, of the introduction that we went through. And the book of Leviticus is named because it mainly uh, deals with the laws and regulations that the Levitical priesthood was going to have to attend to. So Levi, Leviticus. It focuses the book on the way Israel was to come and worship the Lord as a nation and as an individual. And I can only expect that the, the feeling and the emotion that Israel had, this wandering generation had, as they were being told of the way in which to offer sacrifices and the way to come and the way to build is nothing other than utter, complete excitement. Because this has not happened. This is new, right? Now they're being told, this is the way you come to me. And there was a very um, descriptive uh, uh, manner by which God said, you come this way and this is what you do. And gives them so much information. He's making a nation um, out of these people that have been in captivity and slavery for 400 years. And he's given them all kinds of laws, all kinds of regulations, all kinds of um, ways by which they could have a peaceful country. It was a tremendous blessing. The law was good. The law was not bad. The law couldn't save you. It was meant to tell you that you needed somebody in Jesus. But don't read into that that the law was bad. The law is not bad. So um, this was something that was meant to be, you know, a blessing to them. Um, a couple of other just little data points I find interesting. Holy is mentioned 71 times, went over this last week. 91 times we find the word cleansing or some form, form of that. 128 times some word or phrase dealing with uncleanness. Um, and that, those simple repetitions of holiness, it tells us of the emphasis of this book. Now, one thing I didn't give, and I don't know why I didn't do that last week, but I'll give it to you tonight. It's just a, a very simple outline for the book of Leviticus. So, first of all, major point number one is there are laws for sacrifices, and that's what we covered last week. Laws for sacrifices, chapters one through seven. Tonight, we should certainly get through the second section, which is um, the priesthood, chapters 8 through 10. And in that, you're, we're going to read about the ordination. We're going to read about the beginning priestly ministry and how all of that was inaugurated and commissioned. We're even going to find out an error in the priesthood, a sin in the priesthood. So uh, number one through seven is the laws for sacrifices. Eight through 10 is the priesthood. Chapters 11 through 15 are laws of purity. It'll deal with the clean and unclean animals. It'll deal with childbirth. It's going to deal with laws about disease and cleansing after discharges. That's everybody's favorite chapter, I know. So hang tight. We'll get there. Um, chapter 16 is the Day of Atonement. Um, chapter 17 through 26 are laws for holy living. And chapter 27 is vows and tithes. And so just a brief outline. So in our study, I hope to get those next two sections, which are uh, the commissioning of the priesthood, chapters 8 through 10, and laws for dealing with ceremonial uh, purity. So those are chapters 11 through 15. So let's, let's begin to look at that first section with the commissioning of the priest. And um, so 
again, we have the three different things we're going to consider in this. But the first one is uh, these men were being consecrated in chapter 8 as well as the tabernacle. So this was something that they're about to start it. They have built it. They've made the clothes. They have built the uh, altar. They have been given the guidelines. The priesthood, no doubt, had gone over them again and again and again to make certain they had it. They probably, if um, were reviewing the night before, just because there are so many details, wash this part, sacrifice this part. Don't do that. Bury this part outside. Eat this part. Don't eat any of that part. Keep the hide. Consume it all. I mean, so all of these details, you can imagine, they were, um, they were in anticipation. So listen, we're in chapter 8. In verses 1 through 5, we'll read uh, those verses to begin with. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, the anointing oil, a bull as a sin offering, two rams, and a basket of unleavened bread. And gather all the congregation together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. That is the, the physical location where they would worship the Lord. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was gathered together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, this is what the Lord commanded to be done. What a great line. This, what we are about to do is what the Lord has told us to do. It would be a wonderful thing if we said that at the beginning and the end of everything we did. This is what the Lord has commanded us to do. We have done what the Lord has commanded us to do. Those would be two wonderful bookends for our life. What are the commands of the Lord? Well, this is the Old Testament. We don't have to worry about commands today. <laughs> uh, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. The Lord has said, be holy for I am holy. And so when you think of commands, do you think of commands as some blessed opportunity to walk in the ways of the Lord and express your love to him? Or do you look at the commands as things that kind of cramp the way you want to live? And, and if, if you're looking at it as, well, it cramps the way I want to live, then you need to fall in love with Jesus afresh in a new way tonight. Because the commands of the Lord are not burdensome to those who love him. They become the expression of my love to the Lord. And there is nothing legalistic or out of place with that. In verses 7 through 9, um, Aaron puts on the priestly clothes. And, and we're going to do a lot of summarizing here. And then verses 10 through 13, the tabernacle is anointed with oil. So let's look at that. Also, Moses uh, took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it. And consecrated them. This is a repeated word um, here in this, this section of, of consecration, setting apart. He sprinkled, verse 11, some of it on the altar seven times, anointed the altar and all its utensils and the laver and its base to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Then Moses brought Aaron's sons and put tunics on them, girded them with sashes and put hats on them as the Lord had commanded. And so we, what we see here and what is taking place is the priesthood and the tabernacle is being set apart. The priests and the temple are being set apart. That is not so different from what we read in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, who is the priesthood and where is the temple? Where is that? Well, look around you. 
Look to your left, look to your right, look up front, look behind you, and you have just seen the priesthood and you have seen the temple. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16, speaking about how in the new covenant today that we are the temple of the Lord. He says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? I know most of you have probably heard that verse, 1 Corinthians 3.16. But I want you to imagine for a moment you have never heard anything like that before. What would... What goes through your mind? And of course, the part that really stands out is that last phrase. The spirit of God dwells in you. The spirit of the omnipotent, omniscient, amazing God of the universe dwells in you by his Holy Spirit. That is amazing information. That is, that's mind-boggling. And yet, this is what the Bible teaches. We are the temple, collectively. You as an individual. But then also, the, the other metaphor that we are given is not just you as a temple, but that each of us are living stones that have been constructed together by carpenter Jesus. And he's putting us together and collectively we are the dwelling place of God. So the New Testament speaks of both the individual and then the church collectively, not the physical building, but the living stones, us who are followers of Jesus Christ, that we are the building and the Lord is in our midst. So, hey, the temple is, again, look around you. It's wherever the church of Jesus Christ is gathered together is that collective sense, but individually, wherever an individual is who has faith and trust in Jesus, the spirit of God dwells in them. Well, what about the priesthood? 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen generation. There it is, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Well, what are we supposed to do in this priesthood? Well, there's that word that. That simple little word is so important when you read scripture. I would encourage you to stop at every time, every time you come across the word so, because, or that. Those are, those are it's giving you some meaning. You're a priest. Well, what does that mean? Well, you need to proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Uh, the writer of Hebrews would say that we should be offering up continually the sacrifice of praise. Now, the, the priests, they're going to be all about offering up sacrifices. But you are part of the priesthood, and you are to be offering up sacrifices. What is it? An animal, a bull, a goat, uh, two turtle doves, pigeons? It's none of those things. It's a sacrifice of praise. So in this temple where the spirit of God dwells, in this collective temple where the spirit of God is, we are to be about the royal um, priesthood duty of proclaiming praises to him who called you out of darkness. And so this is one of the things that we do. So um, we're reading about them, but understand we have responsibilities as well. You might want to do a little search in the New Testament of where else do you find mention of what the priesthood should do. I'll give you a hint. Um, it's in Hebrews. So you can take the time to kind of figure that out on your own. Um, so verses 14 through 29, back in chapter 8, there are three sacrifi sacrifices that are made. There's a sin offering, there's a burnt offering, and there's a ram of ordination. So those three sacrifices are made there. Um, in verses 31 through 36, the priest spent seven days um, inside the holy place and being consecrated and set apart for the Lord. Um, 
even as they were set apart for the Lord, we are to be, as the priesthood, set apart for the Lord. Paul will say to the Corinthians that we are not our own, but that we have been bought with a price, and therefore we ought to glorify the Lord in our bodies. Everything we should do should be for the glory of the Lord. And we can get so distracted, and we can forget about our consecration. We can forget about that ordination, if you will, that God has upon every believer given spiritual gifts to be walking in them. And we can lose sight of that. But I tell you, when you stand before Jesus, when I stand before Jesus, it will be one of the most important things ever. My salvation is first. That's not in question. But what kind of servant, what kind of priest was I? What kind of priest were you? Did you remain consecrated? So, this is uh, chapter 8 is about the, the consecrating of the men in the tabernacle that we're going to serve. In chapter 9, um, the, the offerings actually begin. So let's read verses 1 and 2 there of chapter 9. It says, it came to pass on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. So these are the Levites. And he said to Aaron, take yourself a young bull as a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering without blemish and offer them to the Lord. And to Israel and to the children of Israel, you shall speak saying, take a kid of the goats as a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering. Verse four, also a bull and a ram as a peace offering to sacrifice before the Lord a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. So they were, here in these verses, they were told that here's all the offerings for you, the priesthood, and for the people that should be offered up to um, inaugurate the, the temple, the tabernacle worship. And so we're, we're told what they are. Last week we got into a little more detail about what each of those sacrifices were, but you can read about them in chapters one through seven. So I'm not gonna go over the meaning of each of those. You can just go back and, and study that on your own. But in verses, uh, verse, uh, verse four, um, there's this amazing promise at the end, isn't there? For today, the Lord will appear to you. Wow. The God of the universe, your savior, your redeemer, the one that took you out of uh, the land of Egypt and delivered you through the Red Sea, he is going to appear to you. And um, this is pretty, pretty amazing. Let's keep on reading verse five. So they brought what Moses commanded before the tabernacle of meeting and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. Then Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord commanded you to do, and the glory of the Lord will appear to you. And Moses said to Aaron, go to, all, go to the altar and offer your sin, your burnt offering, and he goes through the list of offerings that they were to offer up. And so they have this amazing promise. We, they go through the process of offering up and sacrificing these animals. And let's pick up at, at verse 22 towards the end of the chapter. So says, then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces." 
That would have been a good day to have been around there, don't you think? Watching that fire come down. This is interesting. So they, they made these offerings and, and they, the, the, the altar had not been ignited yet. And then the fire comes down and ignites this altar. One of the reasons why they were always to carry around with them the embers from this altar as they traveled, it was not to go out because God had started that fire. Um, but they saw the glory of the Lord. What a, a blessing, what a, a, a beautiful scene we're reading about. But the first thing I want us to, to take a look at is that when they came out uh, in verse 22 through 23, the first part of verse 23, so verses 22 and 23 of chapter 9, Aaron as God's mediator, comes before the people having offered for their sin, offered things up for their sin, sacrifices for their sin, and themselves comes down. And what is the word we read? He, what? He blessed them. Uh, see, the priesthood was the go-between. It was the mediator. The, the priest would go before the Lord on behalf of the people to make their sacrifices and their offerings. The priest would come and then speak to the children of Israel on behalf of God. He was the mediator. Who's the mediator today? Jesus is the mediator. We don't have anybody going and making sacrifices for us. Nobody's atoning for our sins. Nobody's, you know, pronouncing forgiveness. It is Jesus who does that work. Um, and it's him alone that does that work. So he's the mediator today. But it was, it was Aaron and his sons that were the mediators, and he comes and he blessed them. And I think, can't help but to think about Jesus. After he had finished offering himself up, went through the offering process, the death, the burial, and the resurrection, that he is now able to speak words of blessing to us. He's able to invite us to come into his presence. And so we see foreshadowed in Aaron and his sons what they're doing, which would ultimately, and in much grander fashion, be done by Jesus. And so Jesus is at that mediator, that faithful high priest of ours. Well, the fire and the glory uh, do appear, verse 23, into verse 23 and 24. And it's indicating the presence of God in their midst. Unmistakable, right? The glory comes in, that's the Lord. The fire comes down, that's the Lord. And so as they are doing what the Lord commanded, the Lord is blessing them with his presence in their midst. They were following the way in which the Lord had told him to do these things, and he puts his stamp of approval on it in such a significant way. Now, at the end of verse 24, we read that the people responded with praise and reverence. They're shouting to the Lord, and they are falling on their faces in humility and, and awe and reverence of the Lord, a great picture for how we ought to respond to the Lord is to reverence him and, and, and worship him and shout to him. So pretty exciting chapter 9. We can read it. A lot of uh, details are given to us, and we can maybe even lose a little bit of the significance of what's going on. But just think of it this way. This is the first time any sacrifices have been offered up in this manner. And how does it end? With God's glory and fire. That's quite a day. That's a good day at church, don't you think? And so, what a beautiful scene we read. Into chapter 10, the last chapter here on the commissioning of the priest, um, we see the sin of the priesthood. This is kind of unfortunate. So, let's look, read a couple of verses here. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer 
and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offer prone, profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. See the contrast of what we read previously? This is what the Lord has commanded you to do. Now what we read is they're doing something that they were not commanded to do. These guys had experienced the glory of God. They saw the fire. They were on the mountain with Moses when the Lord spoke to him. They were the ones that had more experience than just about anybody else. It would have been Moses. It would have been Aaron, Joshua, and these men. They were right in the epicenter of God's revelation. And they decide they want to do it their way. The question is why and exactly what did they do? Well, we read the response of the Lord. We have another fire response from the Lord. <laughs> A little different this time, though. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them. And they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke. So uh, in case you don't know this, Nadab and Abihu were the nephews of Moses. Aaron is Moses' brother. This is a family thing that's being felt right now. But Moses comes out, Uncle Moses, and he says, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. So, you know, what is it that they, they did exactly? Um, some have suggested that they, they went into uh, the most holy place before the Lord in there. And they, you know, they were caught up in the emotion, the excitement of the glory and the fire of the Lord. And they just got carried away. And their enthusiasm set aside the word of God that had been given to them. And they allowed their emotions to lead them into something that God had told them not to do. That's a possibility. We're also going to read here in just a, uh, a little bit. Well, verse, uh, let me just read it. After we get through that scene, verse 8 and 9 says, Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting. It doesn't say that they did that, but it is an interesting placement in light of the story that we're reading. So were these guys a little drunk when they went to to worship the Lord, that's a possibility as well. We, we don't know exactly all the details other than that they offered a profane fire. They, they did something that was unauthorized, is the idea behind uh, profane. It was an unauthorized action that they engaged in. You know, in the Bible, and I don't know if I'm going to recall them all, but in the Bible, when God begins to do a new work, there is... And God, you'll find that God does a new work. God is manifesting his presence. And God also quickly deals with sin in those new um, eras of ministry. So you can think back to the garden and the sin that happened there. Um, you can think about this scene here. We're going to read later on about um, once they actually get through the wilderness wanderings 40 years from now. And they end up going into the promised land. And they're having great victories. And Achan decides to take some of the spoils, which the Lord had told them not to do. Um, and then they go out to battle and they end up losing um, a really simple you know, engagement on the battlefield. But it was because of their sin. 
It was a new time. It was a new work. And so you can see these different episodes when God's presence is there. When David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant into uh, uh, Jerusalem. And he's going to, you know, bringing it there. It's his first time to come to this place. And then eventually, of course, we know that he's going to save up for the building of the temple. And then uh, his son is going to build it. But as they bring the Ark of the Covenant in, uh, they end up putting it on carts and rolling it into town. Now, that is not the way the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be transported. How is the Ark of the Covenant supposed to be transported? Carried on those poles through the rings, right? But they decided they were going to do that. The last time, and maybe even the first time we read of the Ark of the Covenant being transported on a cart was when the Philistines sent it back to the children of Israel on carts because they had captured it in battle, but they were breaking out with um, tumors. Some would say maybe it's hemorrhoids, and they were in miserable pain. And they said, get this thing out of here. They sent it back in that way. But now it's being transported into Jerusalem, and um, the Lord strikes a man who sets out his hand to steady it. It seems like a rather small infraction, but he is struck dead. It's another new time in Israel's history. And you can go through, you can think about even um, Ananias and Sapphira. At the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, you know, when the church has begun, and they began to lie in their walking in hypocrisy about how much they had given to the church. They could have given whatever they wanted, but they lied and made it out like they were, you know, had given more. And they ended up both dying. So this scene kind of repeats itself throughout the history. Now, I, I think what the Lord, my opinion is, the Lord is trying to make a strong statement. I'm a holy God, and although we're doing something new, a new work is happening, I want you to be holy. And he gives those kind of those statements there. Well, Nadab and Abihu, um, they decided to come however they wanted to, however it pleased them. Let me read to you what Warren Wearsby suggests as what the strange fire was. Um, essentially, it's un... un um, unguided emotionalism. He writes this. He says, this chapter is a stern warning against worship and service that go beyond the boundaries set by the word of God. I agree with that. It's also a warning against carnal enthusiasm that imitates the work of the spirit. Counterfeit worship grieves the spirit of God who wants to lead us in worship experiences that are based on scripture that glorify God and that glorify God. Our worship, our worship must show forth the praises of God and be acceptable to God. So this is his take on, on what was happening, just as raw emotionalism. They got caught up. The text doesn't say it. It certainly is a possibility. You can see where he comes from. Be that as it may, everything else that he had to say is 100% true. We are to be guided not by our feelings and our emotions and praise God for them because he created us with them. But that's not what leads us and guides us. They can, they can be a beautiful experience with, you know, a way in which God expresses himself to us uh, through those uh, emotions, but it never takes over or goes past what has been revealed in the word of God. In John 4, verse 24, we are told to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. So there is that spirit side of that worship, but it never is divorced from the truth of the word of God. 
He has told us how to approach him, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. So the Lord states it quite clearly. I must be regarded as holy and be glorified before the people. God expects holiness from my life. God expects to receive glory from your life. This is something that does not change from the old covenant into the new covenant. Those are principles that are, are taught again. That, that glory should go to the Lord. That um, we should be walking in holiness. And it's a terrible thing when um, the church or a, in a Christian does not do that and it begins to have its ramifications. You know, when David sinned, um, it, we read that it, that with uh, Bathsheba and um, killing Uriah, that this became an, a, an occasion for there to be a great occasion for there to be a blasphemy against God. So is God diminishing his character or his worth or his value or his purity or his holiness or his truthfulness by my sin, your sin? No. But do people stumble and struggle over the, the failure? Yeah, they do. And so we should glorify God first and foremost because he is worthy of it, but also so that we never stumble anybody by the way in which we, leave, we live. So the Lord wants Israel to come before him in a prescribed manner. And when they ignore how to come or their heart is far from them, the Lord rebukes them um, you know, in great fashion. I think you know, if we look at chapter 10, verse 3, how he said to come, we find in the first chapter of Isaiah that they were far from coming in that way, although they were still coming. I want to read to you. Turn with me over to Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 20 is what I want to read to you. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 20. Listen to how the Lord rebukes Israel by coming and, and again offering up profane fire. They're coming in an unaccepted and unauthorized manner. So Isaiah 1, verse 10, it says, Hear the word of the Lord. You rulers of Sodom, give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Well, that is just a rebuke. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand? to trample my courts. Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. And it's really that phrase right there that gives you what's going on. It's iniquity. They're walking in sin, but they're going through all the motions of uh, worship. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They are trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. This is when you pray. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Those are some of the things that we're failing to do. Come now. 
Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet. I mean, you can, can you just hear the change of voice from the opening charge, a lawyer bringing the accusations, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. And then you hear the heart of the father, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as uh, snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Sadly, we know how this turns out. In 586 BC, the sword comes and devours them. His name is Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. So they do not heed the Lord in this. But the Lord requires of the first generation and the generation in Isaiah's day and our day that we come in the way in which he has told us. Well, I just feel like, and I just think, and to me what's really meaningful, mm -mm. I'm sorry. You can do that with how you decorate your house, but you can't do that with how we follow and worship the Lord. What matters is what he said. And this is the emphasis of Moses. You know, this is what the Lord has commanded to us. And so we may, know, may we know his word, may we celebrate his word and walk completely in it. Well, we read that Aaron is told not to mourn over his sons. That would have been a difficult one. Don't you mourn over them. Why? They're guilty of disobeying me and profaning my name in front of all the people. My name is more important than your sons. And so I just let that resonate with you. The Lord is more important. And you even, in a different fashion, the same thing principle is said, though, when the Lord says, don't love your mother or father, your sons or your daughters, more than me. If you love them more than me, then you are not what? Worthy of me. So family should never take precedent over worship to the Lord. Well, I've got to put my family first. I love them too much. If you love your family, you'll obey the Lord. And you will be the best good to them that you can possibly be. Um, but then in verse 9, as we read, verses 8 and 9, he says, don't be affected by alcohol when you come before me. He wanted them to be of clear mind. And maybe that is what Nadab and Abihu were lacking. They were intoxicated and they were just like bumbling around in there. And just the next thing you know, they were, they were uh, meeting their maker, literally. And so verse 16, uh, Moses speaks to them and he says, listen, you were supposed to eat this sacrifice. I mean, it was something that you guys were supposed to eat. Why didn't you eat it? And so as we seem to have another error, they're like, listen, we fasted because we're sad over what's going on. We've held our peace. We haven't said a word. We remained in here for these seven days. We haven't mourned over him, but we, we didn't think it was proper with the, what we were feeling over our brother, our sons that we do this. And so um, they were, they went no further and they were not rebuked for that. So we kind of leave the section there about the priests and we move into the next section um, here. They're going to deal with uh, laws of purity, but chapter 11 specifically, we're going to talk about laws concerning the clean and the unclean animals. Okay. So <laughs> there's a lot 
of description here, and I'm going to just, I'm going to kind of give us a little a walkthrough on this. Um, verses 1 through 8, it talks about the different types of land animals that you can eat, all right? So he's going to talk about the hoof and you chew the cud. The basic rule that we find here is they could only eat those animals that had a split hoof and chew the cud. They had to do both. If they did one and not the other, they were considered unclean. And so he gives examples of the specific animals that you could eat and that you couldn't eat. You can't eat the camel. It chews the cud, but it doesn't have a split hoof. All right, a cow, it's on the menu, okay? It's all right. They, they have a split hoof and they chew the cud. So he goes through this listing. Um, in verses nine through 12, he talks about the water animals. If uh, the water animals... Um, uh, only animals with fins. And does anybody else know what the other requirement was with water animals? They had to have fins and they had to have scales. They had to have fins and they had to have scales. So catfish wouldn't have been on the menu for them. Lobster and shrimp wouldn't have been on the menu. Scallops wouldn't have been on the menu. Calamari, nope. Um, sea bass was on the menu. Okay, so I, th- this was the kind of way in which the Lord said, um, you can eat these things. You can't eat these things. And then uh, he goes into flying things. So in verses 13 through 9, um, he speaks about flying things in the fowl family. Um, you couldn't eat a bird that was a scavenger. Okay? So don't eat the turkey hawk. That would be his chicken's fine. Turkey hawk is not fine. And then verses 20 through 23, which I know you all are very, very concerned about, is what insects can you eat? And um, you could only eat flying insects with a jointed leg. So if the leg was jointed, um, they're on the menu. So eat all the grasshoppers you want. John the Baptist did. So um, those were okay to eat, but other insects that didn't have the jointed leg, they were not. So, you know, what's going on here? Well, the Lord wants them to be a distinct people. And I think you can make a good case, although, listen carefully, it is not stated in Scripture that these things were healthier for you to eat. It doesn't say that. Are they? They are healthier. But that is not something that is explicit here. And I say that because that's a lot of times the reason why people want to say, hey, they use for why we still have to keep these dietary laws is because it's healthier. I won't argue with that. When I travel, when I spend a lot of time over in, you know, some countries, um, I, uh, yeah, I wouldn't eat the shrimp and I wouldn't eat the lobster. And I, I paid attention. I thought about these things, not because I felt like I needed to. I just thought these are, these are healthier. So I think I, that's there, but you're not going to find a verse that says, and, oh, and by the way, eat these things because it'll be way, way healthier. So I think we can make too much of that. What he does say is something that, the, that is about how we will be set apart. They would, excuse me, they would be set apart as a result of this. So Leviticus 20, verses 25 through 26. You shall therefore diminish, uh, distinguish between clean animals and unclean, between unclean birds and clean, and you shall not make yourselves abominable by a beast or bird or by any kind of living thing that creeps on the ground, which I have separated from you as unclean. And you shall be holy to me, 
for I am the Lord are holy and have separated you from the peoples. I have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Um, you might want to look at chapter 11 where we are and look at verses 44 through 46, by the way. Kind of the same thing is stated. But there's, a, there's an element that's added here in Luke tw- uh, Le- Leviticus 20. Um, specifically, the in- verse that I emphasize in verse 26, that you are separated from the peoples. This is important. Flash into the New Testament. Let's, let's, let me set it up like this. Do we have to keep these dietary laws today? Is it required for us to keep these dietary laws? Um, And I I mean this in the sense of not do you prefer to eat this way? I mean this in the sense of if you don't eat this way, are you an abomination to the Lord? Because that's what he said here. That's the question. Not, well, I think this is a better way to eat. That's not the question. The question is, are you required under um, the word of God to do this? And yes, I agree with you. The answer is no. But let's take some time to, to look at some of these points. Uh, turn with me over to Acts, the book of Acts. And let's, let's kind of land somewhere around chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. This is when Peter is going to go to the house of Cornelius, and he's going to preach the gospel to him. And I'm not going to read our reverse, but I just want you to see it. I'll kind of, we'll summarize it. Chapter 10, verse 6, uh, uh, Peter, Simon, is there at the Tanner's house, and, um, you know, he's spending some time um, there. We read in verse 9 that um, some people are going to come to him, and while Peter is uh, uh, praying, he, you know, he falls into this trance at verse 10, chapter 10, verse 10, and he sees verse 11, and I'm going to read, saw heaven open in an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But he said, not so, Lord. For I have never eaten anything common or unclean. So what was in the sheet was evidently a lot of unclean things. And the Lord says, it's time to eat. And he says, nah, I'm not going to eat that. I've never eaten stuff like that. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, what God has cleansed, you shall not call common. This was done three times and the object was taken away. And then some Gentiles come to him. And they say, come to the house of our master. His name is Cornelius. He wants to hear. Peter goes because he's told to meet with them. And as he goes and he preaches the gospel to them, uh, chapter 30 or verses 34 to the end of the chapter, they preach the gospel. They get saved. The Holy Spirit falls upon them. They speak in tongues just like in chapter 2. Chapter 11. Now, the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcised contended with him saying, you went into uncircumcised men and what? What's that? You ate with them. You ate with them. You ate unclean food with uncircumcised Gentiles. What is wrong with you? And so he explains, verse 5, I was in the city of Joppa praying 
And in a trance, I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by the four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-foot animals. He, he rehearses the whole things. He said, I'm not going to eat it. But again, the voice came to me, verse 9. Verse 10, this was done three times. And then he describes how he went and preached the gospel, and the Holy Spirit fell on them, and they spoke in tongues in the same way, verse 15. And then in verse 18, when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. We read in Leviticus that the reason for the dietary laws was that they might be what? Separate from the nations. What is God doing at this time in the history of the world? He's building his church. And it says in Ephesians, he's taking the two men, the Jew and the Gentile, and he is pulling them together into what? One body. He's making one body. And to have those distinctions, we're not going to allow for there to be one body. And so Peter finds out. So I believe that not only was the greater truth being told to Peter is don't have these... Um, uh, ethnic racial distinctions anymore within the body of Christ. If I've cleansed somebody, they're cleansed. I believe that's a big point. But I also believe on a lesser level, but highly significant to a Jew, he's saying, don't worry about these things and what you eat anymore. And so this is brought up again in Acts chapter 15. A question is uh, brought to them. You can turn to Acts 15. And the question is, hey, a lot of Gentiles are out there getting saved now. What do we do? What do we require of them? And so in Acts 15 verse 28, we read, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. So this is the summary of the matter. And to us to lay upon you no greater burden than necessary, these necessary things. That you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep these things, you will do well. Farewell. Well, it sounds like there are some dietary laws. I would agree with you. It sounds like it. But I would make a case, and I cannot prove it definitively, but I make the case that what he's talking about is don't go to the, a pagan temple anymore. Everything he mentions here, don't abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from, string, from things strangled, from sexual immorality, all of those things happened at a venue called the pagan temple. I don't believe he's giving them instruction about the menu. He's talking to them about the venue of where they go. And so there is nothing else added to them. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. I got Galatians 2, Colossians 2, and Ephesians 2, and maybe one more if you behave. So, um, Galatians chapter 2, I think this is a, an important passage for us to consider on this. Verse 9, when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, the Jews. They desired, what's that word? Only that we should remember the poor. Here's your rule. Remember the poor in Jerusalem. The very thing which I was also eager to do. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. And this would have been an interesting meeting to have been in, huh? The Apostle Paul is calling out Peter. 
And the interesting thing is what he calls them out on. We just read in Acts 10 and 11 that he went into the Gentiles' house and he ate with them and he's defending that the gospel has gone to them. And this has become the very thing that he stumbles in. As it's been said, an unguarded strength will become a double weakness. And so he says, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, Jerusalem, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with them, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Oh, man. You imagine the tension in that room? What is he talking about? You eat bacon cheeseburgers. You have the ham biscuit in the morning until these guys come. And you hang out with your Gentile brothers. You guys have barbecue. You do all of it. You had your catfish sandwich. I saw you. And now all of a sudden, when these guys come up, you decide you're going to start to live like a Jew again. And he's rebuking him for the inconsistency. Verse 15, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the, uh, the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And the work that is in focus in this is not eating with these Gentiles. That's the work that's focused. You say, you can't, you're not going to be brought into heaven by keeping those, those dietary laws. Colossians 2.15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Verse 16, so let no one judge you in food. Don't let anybody judge you in food. Eat all the donuts you want to. Say, don't judge me, bro. No, that's not what's talked about here. But, but the point is, you, this is something that was happening and Paul says don't let anybody judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath Jewish stuff <laughs> which are a shadow of things to come but the substances of Christ Ephesians 2 14 and 15 I've alluded to it already I think this is a really important verse again for he himself is our peace who has made both one Jew and Gentile and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the antagonism. What is it? How did he do it? What is this that he broke down? That is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Hey, what happened? It was abolished. The law of commandments contained in ordinances was abolished in the flesh when Jesus died on the cross. So, again, we see that Paul argues that these things are no longer the case. So one more, you did behave yourself, and I'm not going to go any further than this. We're going to end it right here. First, Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. 
We're answering the question, are we required to keep these dietary laws? Well, if you want to eat that way because you think it's a healthier way to live, more power to you. If you do it because you are saying that it's an abomination, you need to get your theology straight. Because that means everybody else who's not is an abomination to the Lord. I mean, I mean you can't just, see, you see what I'm saying here. So chapter 4, verse 1, 1 Timothy. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth, for every creature of God is good. And nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it, the food, is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. So, can you, is it wise to go and just eat unhealthy food? No, it's not wise to do that. Be smart how you eat, okay? I'm speaking to myself by right now, but, you know, take care of yourself. There are good ways to eat. There are bad ways to eat. I'm not disputing that. My sole focus is on this idea that you are in sin against God and you're an abomination to the Lord if you eat of these things. You cannot establish that from the New Testament. And as a matter of fact, I think you have a large hill to scale to try and disprove it. So um, we are free to eat, uh, receive it with thanksgiving, be mindful of that. Um, the last thing that I'll say is that God does want us to be holy. Now, for them, verses 44 through 46, he says, I want you to be set apart. I want you to be holy by eating these things. And so it had a real place and it had a real force that they were to follow and obey. He wanted them to be holy. Well, we don't transfer over the dietary laws into the new covenant, but what we do transfer over is that profound principle of be holy. That is not changed. Second Corinthians six fourteen through chapter seven, verse one calls us to be holy, a set apart people. And so we allow the instruction from the New Testament to guide us in what is holy living and what is unholy living. I hope, I know we took some time there, but I hope that's helpful. And you can see that there are so many verses and I didn't touch them all about how we should be dealing with these. So we'll have some little um, drop-ins on our relationship to the law as we move through um, these um, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy to help us just get a, as we study these things, what I don't want you to do, I don't want you to go out and then think you got to go do this and start eating a certain way. Otherwise, you're in sin against God. So um, the call is to be holy. Um, but if you can receive it with thanksgiving, it is sanctified before the Lord and all the food is good. Rise, kill and eat. And so let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that you... Um, <sighs> Although we are on the other side of this, we can just look and see how kind you were to the nation of Israel to give them in times in which um, the world was corrupt. You wanted your people to stand out and you said, this is how you can stand out. And Lord, we know that you've told us how we can stand out, how we can remain separate. And may we do it. May we uh, follow you, Lord, um, completely in these matters that you've instructed us in. We want to be a holy people set apart. 
Uh, Lord, thank you that you have come and that you are the fulfillment of all. Thank you, Lord, that you have made, you removed that, that, that separation, uh, that enmity that existed, and that, Lord, you have one new body, and may we learn to walk in that holiness, and may we learn to walk in uh, harmony, unity with each other. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.